this is a true story. Uh, many years ago, and you may already know of this story, there was a news report of a woman in New Mexico who was uh, grilling a homemade tortilla on a skillet. Um, she flipped it over and realized that the burn marks looked like the face of Jesus. It's a true story. And it's a news report because it kind of became a big deal those many years ago. Excited, she showed it to her husband and her neighbors, and you know what? They agreed. They said, that, that does look like the face of Jesus. And so she brought it to, believe it or not, this is where the story kind of takes a weird turn. It hasn't gotten there yet. Uh, she brings it to her priest, and she asks her priest to bless this piece of tortilla. He was reluctant because he'd never done that before, which I know is surprising. But he, she assured him that the tortilla, the Jesus tortilla that is, had changed her life, that it had cured her depression. She was more at peace as a person. It had even reversed her father's alcoholism. And so the priest reluctantly agreed, and he blessed the tortilla, whatever that means. Uh, she brought it home, and she put it in a frame, and she surrounded it with cotton balls to make it look like it was floating in the heavens. I'm not making this up. Throw the image up there. I, it's just a true story. Uh, this is the, do we have it? Is it? There you go. There's the Jesus tortilla, and there's the, the next part. She built a shrine, and that's the shrine, an altar uh, for people to come and visit the tortilla. Now, before you laugh and think this is silly, I want to tell you this next thing, and that's that 8,000 people came to pay their respects to the Jesus tortilla. I mean, that's wild, right? That's wild. You can take that image down. You, you get the picture, literally. It's no laughing matter, though. As, as silly as that may sound, it's really no laughing matter, because... Unfortunately, we live in a world that has to grasp and pull and try to find places of, where's Jesus? Is he in this tortilla? Is he in this rainbow? Is he in this cloud? I wish he was here. If God would just show himself to me, right? See, we don't have to turn to a supposed new miracle manifestation of God to receive a special revelation of who he is. At the core of this letter, this book of Hebrews that we've been studying, is the message that if we know Jesus by his word and by his person, we know God. We know God. You see, the Jesus of the book of Hebrews and of this Bible is greater than the Jesus of a tortilla. And today I urge you to turn with me to Hebrews 2 to see that the love of God motivated him to do far more than just show himself. It led him to adopt us into his family. We just got done singing about that. And as I said, we're going to re-look at the why and how. Okay, So look at Hebrews chapter 2 with me. We're going to start in verse 9 and then read through verse 18. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 9, says this. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. First time his name is mentioned in the book, by the way. And by the way, we started in chapter 1, verse 1. I didn't mention that. If you're a guest of ours today, we, we've been going through this book together. It says, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he who, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, people. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The theme is that Jesus is greater than any and everything. We started with that in chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to see this throughout the entire book of Hebrews, that Jesus is greater than any and everything. That's why back in chapter 1, verse 3, it started out with an amazing declaration that Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. In other words, when you see Jesus, when you read Jesus, you read God. Jesus was made flesh. He is God's manifestation physically put on this planet. Not only that, that he's the exact imprint of his nature, in that same verse, verse 3 of chapter 1, it says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Is Jesus great? Absolutely he is. In chapter 2, we saw that there was a warning, though, that they had started to worship other things and drift from the truth. And the warning was, don't drift. Stay, hold fast to the truth. And that was anchored in the fact that he loves us. That's why last week we saw that, right? That the author of Hebrews quoted Psalm 8 and said, What is man that you're mindful of him, that you love us, people? And the greatest manifestation of that declaration is what we just started reading in verse 9. That Jesus came and was made flesh, God in a body, flesh, skin, and he tasted death for everyone who would believe, for all who would come. This passage we're going to look at this morning, it further explains what it means for Christ to have tasted death for everyone. And if, if you diagram or underline in your Bible, back in verse 9, circle that word for, okay? Because that's a very important word. What it means is in place of. <laughs> tasted death in place of everyone, for them, as a substitution. You see, Christ's sufferings were necessarily substitutionary. He died in our place. And so I want you to see as we sort of jump into the the notes, we're going to have some things on the screen behind me, is that the gospel is a love story. The gospel is a love story and not in a mushy, turn off to masculinity kind of way. The gospel is a love story in this kind of way, that apart from it, you have no hope, but you're loved by God. The gospel is a love story. And so we're going to see and look at three words that kind of help us to get a word picture of what this love story really looks like. The first word is before. It's the first point that we're going to see on the screen behind me, that as the gospel is a love story, we have these prepositions. The first one is before, and how we're supposed to respond to that word before as he goes before us is that we are walking, not creating the path. We're walking, not creating the path that we are to walk on, to live, walking, not creating it, not laying it, but walking on it. As I said, love is the binding element of every one of these prepositions that we're going to look at. Jesus came to do many things. He came to redeem, he came to save, to forgive, to provide, right? He came to do all those things. But I would argue that most of all, he came to adopt. You see, saving was the thing that he did, but it had a purpose. Rescuing was the thing that he did, but it had a purpose. And the purpose was that you're God's. You belong to him, and you fell out of his favor when you sinned, came into this world with sin. He wants to gain you back and adopt you into his family, 
I'm going to make a, a quick note. And that's when we see the word brothers here, okay? You see brothers or sons and daughters or, or sons in our passage. The Greek word for sons can be translated bro, uh, uh, daughters as well. Sons and daughters. So, and, and even brothers can be bro, brothers and sisters. The reason I say that is the author of Hebrews isn't suggesting in our passage that only men are recipients of salvation. It's a way that the New Testament author would just say people, anybody, man, woman, boy, girl, whatever it may be, all may come. And so what I want you to see is that he tasted death for us. The next thing we're going to look at is why? Why did he do that? Adoption. Look at verse 10. It says, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. That's another way of saying the Father, right? For whom and by him. The, the end all be all. Father himself. He, it says, he, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So why did he taste death? To bring many sons to glory, daughters to glory, to make him perfect. <clears throat> the work of he, the father, was accomplished, but it says, by the founder. Your translation may say the word captain or pioneer. We'll talk about that in a moment. First, what was the work that was accomplished? The work was bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Notice, and, and the reason this is many there, is that it's not just the, the incarnate son, right? Not just the son, but many. Many to glory. Not just the son who came but, and was glorified. No, no. Many to glory. As the son was crowned with glory and honor, as we saw back in verse 9, so too are his spiritual siblings. That's why Romans eight seventeen says, and if children, us children of God, then heirs, okay? Heirs of God and fellow heirs with our brother, right? With Christ, Provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Don't drift is what that means. What was the work accomplished? Bringing many sons and daughters to glory. What was the reason? The reason, as it says in verse 10, was perfecting the founder. Look at verse 10 one more time, the very end there. Should make the founder of their salvation. Notice it says perfect through suffering. It's talking about Christ. Now hold on a second. To make him perfect through suffering. That may yet cause you to ask a question. Does that mean that Jesus was not perfect prior to his suffering? Does it mean that he was somehow sinful before his suffering? The short answer is no. This word for perfect is not a term of morality, but one of completion. It is the fullness. Making him full, making him complete is what it's saying. In other words, each additional moment that Jesus was perfectly loyal to the Father, faithful to the mission, and obedient to his Father in heaven. Even in the face, especially in the face, of unrelenting temptation, each of those things <clears throat> was additional proof of the perfection, the glory of Jesus. Most of all, right, his powerful, selfless, obedient, sacrificial, saving death. Make him perfect, make him complete. My daughter Shiloh, who's six, when uh, it's been some years ago, she used to watch, I think this is from Bubble Guppies that she used to watch a lot, but um, they do this thing where they say, pirates are we, whenever they like are be pretending to be pirates. Pirates are we. And whenever she would grab an empty roll of paper towels, uh, she would take it like a telescope and go, pirates are we. And that, I just loved, thought that was the cutest thing in the world. But that's not like a real telescope, right? A real telescope, you guys ever watch like, like a show or movie or cartoon, and you see like a pirate take out his telescope, how big is it? It's, it's about that big, right? But then he extends that telescope, right? And it extends and gets elongated. If you were to look through it bunched up, would it magnify? 
I think a little bit, right? But the further it extends, the more it magnifies, right? Now, the question is, was it less powerful when it was bunched together? No, it's, it's the same. Like, extending it didn't change the nature of that device. Does that make sense? But as it extended, its power became more perfectly realized. Does that make sense? It's the same analogy that we see here. How does, it, how does the suffering of the Son of God make him perfect? It's not that it makes him morally blameless. He was already that. Right? But the further, the more he suffered, the more he was obedient, the more he was loyal, the more that he was faithful, it extended and extended and extended until finally he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, obedient perfectly in his suffering. And sort of his magnification was fully extended where you look at the Son of God and say, the Father presented him in this way to fully realize how glorious he is. Does that make sense? That's the reason. Jesus' suffering brought into completion the full kaleidoscope of the perfection of Jesus. But there's a key word here that I want to hone in on before we move on. And it's that word, founder. Make the founder of their salvation, us, the sons to glory, us, people, the founder of our salvation, it says perfect, complete, fully realized through suffering. That word, founder. Now, your translation may differ. It may say something like pioneer or perhaps captain. The best way to understand that word is really pioneer or trailblazer. What it means is someone who goes first to make a way. That's why it says founder, the one who has established it, so the other word, other people behind it could stand on it. He founded it so that we could come behind him. A pioneer, a trailblazer. Heard a, little, a story about a little girl who was riding a train for the first time in a countryside. And she was looking out the window and the train, you know, moving. And she's looking out the window and she sees that a big body of water is coming near the train. And she starts to freak out. And she looks at her mom and she says, Mom, there's, Mommy, there's a, there's a body. We're about, to, we're about to drown. The train is about to go in this water. And the, her mom just says, it's okay. As the train approaches the body of water, she suddenly realizes there's still afloat because they're on a bridge. And the mommy says, someone went before the train and made a way, built a bridge. Then later, she comes to a mountainside. She freaks out again, we're about to hit a mountain. And the mommy says, it's okay. And sure enough, suddenly, as they come right up next to the mountain, they enter into a tunnel. And the mom says, someone went before us and made a way. That's a pioneer. When there was no way, Someone has gone first and has made a way, a trailblazer. And when this passage says that Jesus is our pioneer, that he's our founder, what it means is that Jesus has made the way that you could not make. He has laid the path that you could not lay. And some of you guys come into this place each Sunday, Sunday, maybe just stumbling in here today, beaten down and discouraged at the end of each day because you've taken up that your daily task is to make a way to build a path, to establish a structure, because you got to make a way. And so what you've done is your daily task is not to make a way with morality and effort. Just understand, folks, that Jesus has made a way. He has not called you to pave a path. He's called you to walk on the path and trust him. When you fail and falter and you fall from the path, as we're not laying the path, but when we fail, understand this. Remember that you were met by a good shepherd, not an angry tyrant. I love Psalm 23 because it reminds you of that reality. 
First of all, we have one that has laid a path and trailblazed for us. But we have a good shepherd that when we falter from the path, he cares for us. Psalm 23.3 is one of my favorites. It says, he restores my soul. Don't miss that word. Restores my soul. And it says he leads me in what? Paths. He's been paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He shows me the way to go. And when I fail, he restores my soul. The next verse is Psalm 23. I don't think it's going to be up there, but it says, Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know what that means? Rod and your staff. It means the thing that you use to correct me, they may be painful, but they are for my comfort. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I just want to say as we apply this, that Jesus has gone before us, that he has made a path, that we're not creating a path, we're walking the path, is to understand, guys, don't live a life bearing a burden of creating a way. Live a life walking on the way that has been made for you, walking on the path laid out for you by the pioneer who has gone before you. You couldn't make a way, but there's one who's gone before you. Walk with him. The gospel is a love story. And it begins with our pioneer, the founder. Secondly, that same pioneer is also beside us. Not only before us, he is beside us, leading us to fellowship with our family. We're going to see this in two ways. The main thing that I want you to see is that our family in this context is God. We have a father, and we are co-heirs with the son, our brother. The author takes some time to expand upon This familial theme that he's introduced in verse 10 where it said, bringing many sons and daughters to glory. So while Jesus is the exact imprint of the divine, please don't miss this, hear this, he is also the perfect representative of the human race. He's the exact imprint of the divine, but he's also the perfect representative, manifestation of the human race. Look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Please don't miss this. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. It says, he who sanctifies and the ones who are sanctified. If you don't know what that means, this is very simple. What it means is uh, the one who is perfecting and the ones who are being perfected. You may think, I'm not perfect. You better believe it, right? But God has set you apart and said, that one's mine. That one is clean. And so when God looks upon us, he doesn't see tainted, sinful, horrible, wretched Caleb. You know what he sees? Jesus. So Jesus is the one who sanctifies, in other words, makes clean, sets apart, and we are the ones who are being sanctified, set apart and perfected by God. Now, that's not really the point. Sanctifies, sanctified. Don't get caught up there. The main point is it says that they are of one source. Now, this could mean two things. It could mean one source through the blood of uh, through through a blood relation. In other words, Jesus is man, and so as He is man, we are man, and so we all have one source. Or it could maybe more likely be we are one source through a new creation. Because Jesus is alive, we can be born again. Either it be one source from our manhood or one source from our Father in heaven. Either way, it says that He's not ashamed to call us brothers and which is amazing to me not foreigners not servants not slaves in his kingdom brothers siblings he uses two old testament passages to reinforce that and i'm actually going to handle them in reverse order starting in verse 13 it says and again i will put my trust in him you may have that in quotations in your bibles and again 
probably in quotations again, Behold, I and the children God has given me. These are quotations from Isaiah chapter 8. This is verse 17 and verse 18. In the context, what Isaiah is doing is he's aligning himself with the faithful Israelites, those who are repentant, those that are seeking to follow God. He calls them children, children of God. Those of you that are repentant, I align myself with you, Isaiah is saying, those who follow God. Now, in Hebrews, Jesus has done the same thing. Those who have turned from their sin and put their faith in Jesus and find life in him, Jesus is not ashamed to say, I'm like you. I'm with you. I align myself with you. But the one that I wanted to spend a little bit more time on is verse 12. So again, he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. This is Psalm 22. 22. That one's easy to remember. Psalm 22, verse 22. Now that psalm is one that you may be more familiar than you think. It begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? Should sound familiar, because that's what Jesus said when he was suffering on the cross. It's a messianic psalm, and for verses, by the way, I said it was 22-22, right? For verses 1 through 21, which is just one short, it says a lot of things about a suffering servant. It talks about And this is some of the things that it says. And I'm not going to read all those 21 verses, but it says, Why are you far from saving me? It talks about my groaning. I cry, but I find no rest. I'm scorned by mankind, despised by people. They mock me. There is no help for me. It goes into great detail to talk about physical exhaustion and pain. It then says, Evildoers encircle me. And then it says, They've pierced my hands and feet. And then it says, They divide my garments and cast lots. Does that sound familiar? It should, because we talked about that in the book of John, right? Jesus has referenced, or John has referenced these things to talk about. They point to Jesus. And so this is a deeply messianic psalm. Now, here's what I want you to understand and listen. In verse 21 of that psalm, the suffering stops. All the pain stops as the psalmist writes that God has rescued the sufferer. That suffering servant finds rescue, I would suggest, eventual resurrection. And so then verse 22 says this, what you see in your Bibles. I will tell of your name to my brothers. No more suffering. I'm going to praise you. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You see, what I want you to see is that the author of Hebrews is saying this because it was by that suffering that Jesus can call us brothers. I stand with you, my brothers, children of God, to praise God. Suffering is gone. Resurrection is what awaits. And I realize that that can kind of bog down. So instead of focusing too much on that, what I want to do is go back to what they all point to, those passages. And that is the end of verse 11. That is why he is not ashamed. That's the word. Not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. I don't know about you. But guys, that rocks my world. We talk about, we sing about, there's a table for all who would come. All. Take of the bread, receive the cup, for his mercy is enough. I know that when you're here, you pep up, you put on the right face. I know that This is not who you are behind closed doors. I know that you're more honest when you're alone than you are when you're with people. 
And I know that there's no one in this room that feels worthy to be called brother by Jesus, sister by the Son of God. When I read that, in fact, this week I just, that got to me. Just to be honest with you, that got to me. Because, guys, I'm so, and I think I speak for all of us, unworthy of that. So unworthy. If your blood brother or sister did something that looked like an absolute idiot, you would be ashamed to call them brother or sister. You would. And God looks at you, the perfect son of God, looks at you and says, we're in this together, man. Think of Peter at Jesus' trial. Peter was ashamed to call him Lord, ashamed to call him brother. Sin is being ashamed to call him Lord. When you don't stand with him, you stand against him. And every day, you and I choose to be ashamed to call him our brother. He is the only one that should be able to do that. And yet he doesn't. In our humanity, in our sin, our brother isn't ashamed to throw his arm around us and say, we're in this together. I love you. Not ashamed. You are forever loved and welcome into a heavenly family, no matter your sin, because your position into that family was granted to you, not earned by you. It was earned by your brother. It was earned by the Son of God. But there's another family that God gives us. And I'm not talking about your mom and dad or your kids. I'm talking about this one. We have more than just one spiritual brother. We have brothers and sisters that we join with on Sundays and perhaps Wednesdays and maybe even during the week. And I just want to suggest to you that you need your family. You need your brothers and sisters. You know, God created us for community. The secular world understands that too. That's why social media pops off. Because we all know that we need to be with other people. And that's why it's also a disease, is because we all know that we need to actually be with other people. Whether it be Reddit, or biker gangs, or book clubs, or CrossFit, or the gym, or mops, moms of preschoolers, or bingo, or you go to a a basketball game or a football game, and suddenly you're high-fiving with a stranger next to you. You guys are bumping bellies together. You know why? Because people crave community. That's natural. That's how you were made. That's why your impulse reaction is to throw arms around somebody else. That's how God made us. That's why you like fantasy football. You were made for community. God created you for that. And I'm afraid that we like community outside of the church more than we like it in it. And I think that maybe the reason for that is because this is an invasive family. It's a messed up family. It's very dysfunctional. It's full of dishonest people, selfish people, lazy people, gossips. That's us, right? Trying to make war on our sin. But it's a dysfunctional family. As crazy as it sounds, though, you need this family. We ain't perfect, but we're perfectly loved. We're warring against our sin. And I think the tendency is to say, Pastor, I hear you, but man, I'm good. (laughs) I've got friends. I'm not talking about friends. I'm not talking about friends. Friends want to keep the peace. 
sometimes the way to a solution is to forsake the peace. You need a church family. Someone in the trenches with you when you're hurting, when you're suffering, when you're losing. Someone challenging and speaking the truth to you in love when your poor choices are causing you to drift and for you to give them jurisdiction to call you out. You need your family. And when you say, I'm good, <clears throat> I've got friends, I don't need that, I'm, I'm living the Christian life on my own. When I hear you say that, it's like you telling me, and you're trying to start a fire, and you're like, I'm good. I got these two sticks, and they're dry enough, and I'm rubbing them together, and I'm saying, but listen, I'm proposing that you take these matches and lighter fluid. You have a way. There is a better way. I was speaking with a church member this week who's going through tremendous loss, difficulty, hardship. And she said, I don't know where I would be without the church. She's right. And every person that I go through loss alongside says the same thing. I don't know where I would be without the church. And I'll just add this. We aren't the church because we are morally superior. We are the church because we've come to know that we are in moral desperation. And we come together to be reminded of that, that when you are beaten down, you need each other. And most of all, you need your brother, Jesus, the son, the center of this love story that is the gospel. And that's the third thing that I want you to see, that he comes between us. And I don't mean between us, but as our mediator between a holy God and sinful man, we can marvel in our mediator, the one that comes between so far, the author has told us uh, what it is. He's talked about adoption. He's talked about us being engrafted into his family. But he now will explain how that is to be. I'm a person that really wants to know why. I want to know what logic has driven this argument or why we're arriving at this place. This is what the author of Hebrews does. He says, now logically, let me explain to you how you can be included into the family of God. And in short, Christianity stands or falls on the incarnation of Jesus. It stands or falls on the fact that Jesus took on skin. The Son of God became fully man. Again, going back to verse 9, is that he, if he's going to taste death for, in place of, everyone, he had to be able to represent them. He had to be able to represent people. Look at verses 14 through 16. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. You see, the author is not talking about the fear of dying. You see that, right, in verse uh, 14. Yeah, in verse 14, he might destroy the, the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The author is not talking about the fear of dying. He's talking about the fear of death. The fact of the matter is, if the gospel is not true, then death is horrifying. Permanent, eternal suffering, separated from God. Dying has nothing on death. And that's why the author of Hebrews introduces this. I want to tie in, though, Colossians 2, 13 through 15, because I think it maybe puts additional flesh on this. It says, and you who were dead, that's the death, who were dead 
in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You were dead, separated from a holy God. But look, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, the wages of sin being death. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, Satan included, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. There's a little part in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 that simply says, death is swallowed up in victory. It's a pretty good summary of what we just read. The death is swallowed up in victory. You see, if Jesus was going to do all, that as, all of that as man's representative, he would have to do it as a man. And so we need, now we'll see a summary of ideas in verse 17 and 18. Therefore, so it says, in light of that, here's the presentation. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. That word priest may be a, a weird term. And I try to talk about this term from time to time from the pulpit because I want to kind of take out some of the, the stigma of thinking about maybe Catholicism or having a poor understanding of what that word means. The word priest is, is very biblical. And that is that it simply means a go-between, uh, a mediator, one that stands between. That's why in Catholic confessional, they go into a booth, they talk to the priest because the priest is supposed to talk to God, a, a mediator, right? Uh, it's, it's not biblical, though, because Jesus is our high priest, which is what we're about to talk about. And so when, I, when you're a priest, I just want you to think in between, the one that goes between the mediator between God and man. If God is holy and man is sinful, we can't just come together and be all right. There has to be a mediator, one that comes with you and brings the two parties together. Sort of behind this passage is a popular Old Testament tradition called Yom Kippur. You ever heard that? Raise your hand if you've ever heard that phrase before, Yom Kippur. Uh, it's still celebrated. In fact, this past Tuesday and Wednesday was Yom Kippur in the Jewish tradition. Uh, Yom Kippur. It means the day of atonement. Atone means to uh, pay for, to satisfy to satisfy wrath, okay? So uh, when you think of atone, atoning for something, it means to do something to, to pay, pay for or to satisfy something. And so you kind of see some imagery coming into play here. That Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, is the day that God's people came together and God's Old Testament high priest would say, God's wrath must be appeased. Now this would happen in the Old Testament before God in what was called the most holy place of the tabernacle or the temple. And if you're confused on the details, we'll just keep going past them. As representative for all of God's people, the high priest would present himself to offer a substitutionary sacrifice on the people's behalf. He would bring some sort of sacrifice to say, God, pour out your wrath on this life, this animal, these animals, and spare these lives over here. A mediator, a go-between. So it says in verse 17, the second part there. It says, in the service of God, faithful high priest in the service of God, that's Jesus, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word propitiation means to turn wrath into favor, to satisfy wrath and turn it into favor. We'll talk more about that in a moment. The first high priest on the first Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, God told Moses to warn Aaron, that was his name, Aaron, not to come into the most holy place just whenever he felt like it. That he could only come into that place a special day, one day per year, lest he die. <laughs> so kind of high stakes here. Like, you ever get real nervous because you got to give like a public speech or the big games and you're like looking at yourself in the mirror like trying to psych yourself up? Imagine not getting this right and then you just die. I mean, teeth chattering. Palms sweating, no question about it. Aaron had a big job. 
That was to go and represent people to a holy God. And so what he had to do was he extensively cleaned himself, all these ceremonies, bathing rituals. He had to put on special garments. He had to bring a sin offering on behalf of his family. And then he brought an offering on behalf of God's people. Two goats. He brought two goats. One goat was to be killed and offered on the altar. Blood was shed and poured out on the altar. That sacrifice was a propitiatory sacrifice. The word here, verse 17. And this is boring, just stick with me for a second, okay? The first goat was a propitiatory sacrifice. It was God, accept this sacrifice, turn your wrath onto this, and bring your favor onto us. What about the second goat? One goat would be symbolically one that bore the sins of the people. Aaron would place his hand on the goat and sort of figuratively transfer the sins of Israel onto the goat. They would release it into the wilderness. A scapegoat is what the name of that is. A scapegoat, one that takes the fall, right, for the others. That's not a propitiatory sacrifice. That's an expiation, meaning to take away sin from the sinner. So there's two goats that were presented, one to satisfy the wrath of God, another to remove the sin from the people. Don't you hear it? Jesus has ushered in both and accomplished both. That's why it says here that he might become, in verse 17, a merciful, these are very two, two very important words, merciful and faithful high priest. He was merciful to pardon sinners. You and I don't deserve that. He is merciful to pardon sinners, but he is faithful to pay the price and to take your place. A merciful high priest who pardons the sinner, but a faithful high priest who pays for your sin. This is the gospel. Verse 18 then says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. This verse almost sounds like it doesn't belong here, right? It kind of stands out. that You've gone to all this doctrinal explanation, which is beautiful, but then suddenly it says Jesus is able to The son, the high priest, is able to help those who are being tempted. Here's why it matters. In the Old Testament, priests had to be chosen from among the community they served so that they could both represent, but also so that they could empathize with the people's problems. This is true of you, too. When you seek help, you want someone who has experience. If you have a physical ailment, you want to go to a doctor that understands that physical ailment. If you're having problems in school, you want to go to a tutor that has experience relevant to that difficulty. When you go to a barista, you want someone who knows how to make your drink experience, right? When you go to a mechanic, you want someone who has faced and seen your problem and knows how to make a solution, who, who can empathize and sympathize with your issues. You want someone who has seen the problem several times, fielded your request. That's not just true in those examples. Because isn't this true in a more serious light with the problems that you face in this life? You want advice or counsel from someone who has also been cheated on. You want advice or counsel from someone who has also lost a parent, who has also gone through a tough pregnancy, who has also battled depression. You want advice or counsel from someone who has also wrestled with their flesh, who has also gone through the gauntlet perhaps, of parenting a child that wants nothing to do with you. Someone who can show you how to walk through it and stay faithful and obedient and strong in the midst of it. You want someone that can sympathize and help 
when you're being tempted, when you're being tried. Guys, the humanity of Jesus matters because Jesus went through the same real human range of emotions and weaknesses that you and I do, except he remained perfectly obedient while also vulnerable and weak as a man. He suffered. He went through pain, loss, anger, and yet remained perfectly obedient. And that same Jesus, the Spirit of God, is your counselor. He's your helper. He's your aid. I just want to remind you, and I know that there are people in here that are going through real problems. God doesn't just see you in the trials of your life. He has himself walked through them and now stands with you in them. And you don't have to go through extensive cleansing ceremonies to have him near. You don't have to bring some fancy garments, clean yourself up. One who has made a way. The pioneer has gone ahead of you and laid the path that you may walk on it. Guys, God loves you. He loves you. And in the midst of your hardship and struggle and suffering, he is with you. The one that goes before you, but the one who stands beside you. And in the times that you fail, the one who stands between you and a holy God saying, not his or her sin, my righteousness. If you come here today, and some of this stuff has, has confused you. If it's lost on you, let me first say that this is a very complicated book, and I'm <laughs> overwhelmed at the prospect of trying to explain some of these things. But I want to make this very clear and very simple. When you come into this world, you have a problem. And your problem is greater than money, your problem is greater than health, your problem is greater than relationships. Oh, it's a relationship. Your great problem is that you stand in conflict with a holy God. You ain't holy. You're not perfect. No one in this room is. So the gospel begins with love in the heart of God who wanted to rescue and save the sinner. That's you. And so today if you come here, I want you to hear one message before you leave. And that is that there is there's a table. There's a seat reserved for you. You say, Pastor, I've done so much. You don't know me, man. You're right, I don't. But the one who extends that invitation does for all who would come. His mercy is enough to cover your sin. This is communion. And as we take this Lord's Supper this isn't a way to put us on some moral high ground. The opposite is true. This is where we humble ourselves and say, we can never measure up. Praise be to the one who can. If you've never come to a point in your life where you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, have, have confessed your sin before him, if you can't say with confidence that if I were to die today that I would be with God in heaven, then I hope that today God is pushing and pulling on you, perhaps drawing you to himself. You know, the heartbreak 
of the Jesus tortilla is that it implies that God had finally visited earth after such a long absence. That God is not near. (laughs) Guys, the Spirit of God is as present in this room as he was in the upper room. So as we take communion together, let us be reminded that God is here with us.